You're listening to Doctrine, a series where we examine the fundamental elements of the Christian faith, which are necessary for every Christian to know and understand. It's being taught to you by Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County. If you have your Bibles ready, let's begin. Well, we are on week 10 of our Doctrine series, uh, and this week we are looking at uh, Ecclesiology Part 2, or the Doctrine of the Church Part 2. So uh, Ecclesiology uh, begs the question, who or what is the church? And an uh, important thing we talked about last week is that the church is the community of all true believers uh, for all time. And if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to get online, download the study. The notes will be up tomorrow uh, for this study. And uh, we, uh, we looked at last week how the church began. And obviously the book of Acts, if you've been coming on Sunday mornings, uh, you, you've got a good foundation of the beginning of the church. And we looked at that in depth last week. Uh, we looked at uh, the different marks of the church, that there's the universal church, every different tribe and culture all across the world are, you know, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that he is God, that he's risen from the dead, and you believe that his death on the cross atoned for your sin, uh, then you're saved and you are part of that uh, true universal church. And uh, in a way you can be sure of that, because we can be sure that we're saved, are the fruits of our life. Do we bear the fruits of a Christian? Uh, but the universal church, we're part of this, this massive uh, body of believers all across the world. Then there's the local church, which you know goes all the way to Prineville and the different churches in town uh, that are true believers. And then you can go local, local, which is just this fellowship here as we get together regularly. There's the invisible church, which is the church how, is, is how God sees it. And then there's the visible church, which is how we see it. And the Lord sees, uh, I'm sure, different than what we see. You know, we see people here and, and we automatically assume most of the time that, wow, it's so awesome. This person, this guy, this gal, they're part of the church. But the Lord tests the hearts. He knows the hearts and he knows who's just a poser. He knows who's a wolf in sheep's clothing. He knows who's coming in and, and is genuinely seeking but hasn't yet uh, put their trust in Jesus as their savior. Uh, so visible and invisible. And then we talked about last week, the gathered and scattered church. Here we are together gathered. Uh, but then as we leave this place, we're scattered, but we're still the church. We're still part of the true community of believers. And uh, we, we talked about Mark Driscoll and Gary Brashear's kind of definition of the church that, and I'll read it again because I, I think it's a very great definition. The local church is a community of regenerated believers or born again believers who confess Jesus Christ as Lord. In obedience to scripture, they organize under qualified leadership, gather regularly for preaching and worship, observe the biblical sacraments of communion and baptism, are unified by the spirit, are disciplined for holiness, and scatter to fulfill the great commission as missionaries to the world for God's glory and their joy. So as that was read, does that describe you? You know, are you part of the true church? We looked at eight different points of uh, what makes uh, someone part of the church or what makes the church. Uh, we really went through about five of them in depth last week, but uh, number one, and I think there's a reason it's number one, is uh, regeneration. If you're going to be part of the true church, then you need to be born again. And so we looked at membership is not a matter of external experience or external attachment or what culture you're a part of or your heritage or anything like that, uh, any work that you've done at all. Nothing on the external makes you part of the true church, but it's all a spiritual union that happened, you know, um, and, and that's a very important part of, uh, of the doctrine of the church. What makes someone part of the church? Not outward works of righteousness that we've done, but by the grace of God, through faith, we're saved. It's all the work that he's done on the cross. It's all the atoning work through his blood that his righteousness uh, was imputed into our account 
So we were righteous and our sin was put on him so that he was made sin for us, that, he, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So major part of uh, what makes someone part of the church is, have you been born again? Has regeneration taken place in your heart? Uh, we looked at uh, qualified leaders uh, make a church the church, and you, you see that all throughout the New Testament. We'll probably get into that next week. Right now, that's my plan, uh, but qualified leaders, pastors, elders, deacons, uh, it's all part of the true church. Um, the third thing was that the church needs to come together and be gathered together. In fact, uh, the word ecclesia means to assemble for meeting. Uh, to an assembly that takes place. There's community that takes place. And as we looked at the Trinity, whatever, five weeks ago or whatever, we saw that within the Trinity, there's community. And it just boggles our mind how the Godhead, the three people of the Godhead, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, within that relationship, there is community happening. And as they are eternally and even before time began that we know it, they were in community with each other. Uh, it's God's heart that we be uh, in community with each other as well. So looked at that sacraments, uh, communion. It's, it's funny to call it that, you know, but communion, baptism, major parts of the church unification in the spirit, you know, what we're united on and what we disagree upon. You know, well, we talked about this a while ago, but open-handed and closed-handed issues, you know, and so this church has a statement of beliefs. You can read it on the website, things that we hold tightly to that we won't budge on, not even a, a millimeter. And then there's things that, you know, biblically it's gray area and there's awesome men and women that love Jesus and love the word and dig into the word. And, and, uh, you know, there's, there's room for dialogue on certain issues. Um, Issues those wouldn't be would be Jesus' deity, it's a non-negotiable. Jesus' humanity, non-negotiable. Inspiration and inerrancy of the word, non-negotiable. Um, the Trinity, non-negotiable. You know, there, there are some non-negotiable things. Then things like when the rapture is going to take place. Man, I know that there's guys that love Jesus. That we'd be able to have a really, you know, red-faced debate on when that would happen, you know. Or, you know... Uh, you know, should you stand during worship or stay seated the whole service? Or, you know, there's tons and tons and tons of non-essential things that we're just, we hold in open hands. So um, church discipline is a major part of the church. Uh, you know, Matthew chapter 18, we read that, you know, if a brother has sinned against you, you're to go and, and you know, try to reconcile with just you and him or you and her alone and if they don't hear you, then you take two or three witnesses with you that every word may be established. And if they still are hard-hearted and, you know, and, and biblically you can see that it's sin that they're in, uh, then, you know, you, you go and you get in the, the elders of the church and you tell it to the church. And if they won't, heal, if they won't hear the church, uh, then, you know, you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and deliver such a one who's hardened their heart uh, against the Lord and against the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that you deliver such a one, harsh, harsh wording, I know, deliver such a one over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. But why? That their soul might be saved in the end. And uh, we had a major uh, time with that in the church back in December. We've done a couple different Bible studies, even this year as I've been here on church discipline. And you can get into a whole study on that online. If you go back to the December era, there's uh, church discipline recorded. And, uh, but church discipline, just not for the sake of pointing out people's sin and mocking them in front of the community and let's embarrass so-and-so, but for the point of reconciliation. You know, we who are spiritual, or you who are spiritual, if I'm in sin, you come and you, uh, uh, you restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, Galatians chapter 6 tells us. But you need to take heed to yourself, lest you be tempted. You know, if you're an alcoholic and you uh, have a buddy that's at the bar, don't go in the bar and try and rescue him, because you yourself are going to be tempted. Get a good group of strong guys, you all hold each other accountable, and go rescue the guy. But um, then... Uh, Paul tells Timothy that with elders, you're not to receive an accusation against an elder except for two or three witnesses. And then you can have a dialogue with that elder about their sin. And then you rebuke that elder in the presence of the other elders that the rest may fear. 
And so uh, just very important, though, as you look at the book of Numbers, you see, man, we're not to murmur against the church leadership, not to murmur against leaders, you know, that, uh, you know, the, the, when you do that, you're murmuring against God, you're complaining against God. And so if you have an issue, just go right to the leader and talk to that leader about it. Let the leader work that out with you. But uh, if you ever hear anything about me or the other elders or another leader, you say, you know what, you need to go talk to them about it. Um, I'm, I'm not to receive such a thing except for with two or three witnesses. And really, Matthew 18 tells us you need to go to you and your, to the brother alone and talk with them. And then if he won't hear you, then come get me. I'll come and, and I'll just be an impartial objector so that I can establish every word. So church discipline, it's a whole Bible study in and of itself. We've already done a few. Um, the seventh mark of the true church is uh, that we would obey the commandment to love one another. And 1 John gets really deep into that, that, you know, if we say that we're in Christ, but we hate our brother, we're lying and the truth is not in us. And man, that is just something that's so convicting, you know, that if you, if you hate your brother, if you're harboring bitterness towards your brother, uh, but you say you're a Christian, then man, there really needs to be a check of your heart, a, a real check of, you know, man, are you in Christ? Because if you're in Christ, the Holy Spirit will be telling you, hey, go deal with this, Matthew 18, uh, according to Matthew chapter 18, so that you can reconcile. And uh, so obey the commandment to love and, and, you know, the commandment to love in the church, it overrides like, you know, we're to love each other. It doesn't mean we have to like each other. You know, we pray that the Lord will help us to like, but within the church, there's just different personalities. You know, there's, my mom calls them sandpaper people, you know, and people that just rub you. And, uh, and, but we're to love. And I think that as we love, like is going to be obsolete. You know, and, and who cares about like anyways? You know, a lot of you guys are like, yeah, I don't like you, you know. And so, okay, you have permission to not like me. But, um, but love overrides like or even, gosh, you know, um, I don't have a lot in common with these people. You know what? You do have one thing in common, and that's Jesus, and that's all that matters. So, uh, you know, you got to weed out all that other stuff and, and come and obey the commandment to love uh, within the church. And the eighth thing is to um, obey the Great Commission. Important thing that the church would go into all the world or all out into the community and uh, be witnesses and make disciples. And we're going to look in just a second again at what that means to obey the Great Commission. Um, And so we want to look at tonight some of the major purposes of the church. Major purposes of the church. And I'm going to give you three things, okay? Number one, we're to minister to God. And when we minister to God, that is what we call worship. And the word minister means to serve. That's really what that is. You're serving the Lord and you're worshiping the Lord. Uh, the word worship, proskuneo, means to kiss toward. You're serving the Lord with love and adoration and praise. And you can look at Colossians chapter 3.16, and some of you, you might not know it, but you probably have it memorized that we're to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. We're to be singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. And, and Ephesians chapter 5 says, you know, make the most of your time by being filled with the Spirit, and then again, singing and making melody uh, in, in your heart uh, to the Lord. So uh, number one uh, purpose of the church, uh, to worship the Lord, to minister to the Lord. Number two, we're to minister to the believers. And, uh, and you know, I, I like to call that nurture and maturing. <laughs> we're to nurture to the point of maturing one another. Uh, pouring into one another, that each one of us would grow up to be mature believers. Uh, so the church has this obligation, this responsibility <clears throat> to nurture those who are already believers and just build them up in the faith. And you can flip over to Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. Colossians 1, 28 says, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. 
So something that happens, the desire of a servant of the Lord, of a minister of the Lord, and we're all ministers, we're all called to be ministers in one way or another, is that you know, we preach and we warn every man so that we can present them perfect before the Lord. We want to see that sanctification process just be completed in a person as much as possible on this side of eternity. And then in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11, if you haven't been turning to the other references, at least turn to this one. So this is what we feel is uh, really uh, the vision or better put the revelation of God's heart for this church. In Ephesians 4 11, he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. And here's why. For the equipping of the saints, or the edifying, or the building up of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Does that explain you yet? Doesn't explain me. Uh, you know, unity of the faith and the knowledge of the second, a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Verse 14, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love that we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. So this maturing, this edification that takes place in the believers, that's our heart as a church that that happened here. Uh, and it's not going to happen if only Rory is ministering, if only Rory is trying to edify and build up, or even the other four elders, you know, it's, it's just not going to happen. You know, every single one of us, the whole reason for a pastor is to equip you and give you guys the tools that you can go out and make disciples and teach faithful men, like Paul, or Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, go out and teach faithful men who will go out and teach faithful men who will go out and teach faithful men. It's the pay it forward concept. You know, 10 men doing the work of one rather than one man doing the work of 10. So we minister to God in the church through worship. We minister to each other to nurture and mature each other. And then uh, thirdly, we minister to the world uh, through evangelism and through mercy. And if you could flip over to Matthew chapter 28, we'll just look at the Great Commission. We recently did an in-depth study on the Great Commission when we were finishing the Gospel of Luke. But the commission or the charge that we're given in Matthew 28 verse 16 is that we're to be witnesses and that there's work to do. You know, now that we're saved, it's not to sit around on our lazy boy and, you know, see what's latest flick on Netflix, you know, but now that we're saved, we have a mission. And remember last week, a couple Sundays ago, we looked at the Holy Spirit is a mission-minded spirit. Therefore, the Spirit-filled church is a mission-minded church. And you can just look there and let's look at verse uh, 18. Uh, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And back in verse 16, you read that the 11 disciples went to Galilee. They saw Jesus risen. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And so the context is, after the resurrection, really an exciting time. But when they saw Jesus in his resurrected state, a lot of these disciples, maybe they doubted, am I really seeing Jesus alive? Is this really happening? Quite possibly that's what happened. But I think that knowing what they'd just been through, denying Jesus, forsaking him in the garden, I think they're really wondering, am I useful at all to this man's cause? I mean, look at what he's done laid in his life down, shedding his blood, rising from the dead. Look what I've done. Denied him, ran off in the garden, uh, denied him three times, forsook him, wasn't there for him. Am I worth anything? Am I useful at all for the cause or for the ministry? And so, you know, in the context of all this, in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus gives them and challenges them with this greatest charge of their whole life to go into all the world. And, and we see there's one command, actually, in the Greek language, there's only one command. And we kind of 
add a bunch of commands here in the, in the Great Commission. Uh, but the one command is, the, is that charge, make disciples. It's the only word that's in the imperative. And all the other ones, go and baptize and teach, those are all just results of making disciples. You know, make disciples. And as you're making disciples, the natural thing is that you are going to go. The natural thing is you're going to baptize people. They're going to be making that first outward public obedient stand for the Lord, showing the world that the old man is dead with Christ and has been buried with Christ, but the new man or the new woman is alive for new life in Christ. These are just natural things, teaching people. And Paul says in uh, Hebrews chapter six, you know, he just says, man, it's time for you guys to be teaching. But right now you guys are still needing to be taught the elementary principles of the faith. Let's move on. Let's quit just sucking down the milk and let's get into the meat of the word. It's time to develop some teeth and understand the deep doctrinal truths and then to go out and teach others. And he just charges the Hebrews. And I don't know if I said it was Paul that wrote that. No one really knows. I kind of think it was Paul, but you know, charges the Hebrews, uh, man, make, make disciples, teach people, go baptize, teach. And so it's so extensive, go into all the world, and yet it's intensive. You know, make disciples. You've got a purpose. You know, bring people to heaven and take heaven to people. You know, we're to be doing both of those things. And so uh, there's, there's a neat process there that it's as we go. In Romans chapter 10, verse 11, you know, how are they to believe unless they've heard? And how are they to hear unless someone tells them? And how's someone going to tell them unless someone's sent? You know, We've got to be preachers. We've got to be people with mission hearts. And if you don't have a mission heart, if you don't have any concern for the Great Commission, ask the Lord for that. Not something you can drum up on yourself, beat your chest really hard. I'm going to be a witness, you know. Ask the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is a, is a witnessing spirit. And ask him to give you that heart. I've just been burdened recently for my neighborhood, and I'm getting really friendly. I talked about Jack the other day. Uh, I'm getting real friendly with my neighbors and... and um, and what good is that if they go to hell? <laughs> and so I've just, and a couple of our neighbors have been coming to church. We're like, why don't we do like a neighborhood block party where, you know, we just have a barbecue and people can bring their, you know, world famous desserts or whatever, you know, and maybe we could slip a present of Case for Christ movie DVD in their hands or something like that. Something that, you know, maybe we could reach out. Let's pray. We were all saying, let's pray how we can reach our neighbors for Jesus. But I've just been feeling stirred that I don't want my time in Prineville to be wasted. And that could be another 80 years if I'm lucky. Okay, probably not. But, you know, uh, I don't want my time to be wasted. Um, and I love that song tonight. That really ministered to me. Take my life and let it be all for you and for my glory. Every breath that we take, man, may the Spirit have full access uh, to use us. So, Lord, just restore our restore our care and concern for the gospel. But any, again, we, we looked at the um, Great Commission in depth a couple weeks ago. We've looked at, you know, as in the book of Acts, we're confident that the Lord wants us to be a mission-minded people. And so uh, a mark of the church is that we will be, uh, you know, the Lord will be adding to the church daily those that are being saved. So there will be witnessing, there will be evangelism, uh, which is the word gospel in the Greek, euangelio. And uh, that'll just a fruit of the church. Uh, not only evangelism, but mercy, mercy. Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 6, verse 35, uh, and this was just a verse that was convicting to me, uh, to love your enemies, love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. And so, man, you know, that we would be loving to the people out there that won't give us anything back. They might not even ever come to church again, but that we would love on them. And, you know, we have the ministry, the Oasis, where I know that happens, you know, day after day, the same people come, invite them to church, never come. But man, right now the Lord's just calling us to, to feed them and love on them, even if they won't return, you know, praying right now about what the Lord would have in this community for a shelter. Uh, um, you know, as the winter comes and just a huge homeless population, uh, Lord, what would you have us do as a church in extending mercy and giving people a warmer place to sleep at night um, during the winter months? So 
You know, a merciful ministry could include civic activity. You know, it could include, you know, being involved in, polit- being involved in politics to help, uh, you know, conform our politics to biblical morality. You know, it could be just praying for the people that are minorities and loving on the minorities, loving on the people that are discriminated against. Uh, these are all ornaments of the gospel. And uh, just, man, Lord, lead us as this church how to just be a fragrance, the aroma of Christ out there to those that are perishing. And so we've got um, uh, ministering to uh, the Lord in worship, ministering to each other and nurturing each other, and then ministering to the community, ministering to those outside of the church through evangelism. Now, not one of those things is more important than the other. You know, if you're missing one of those things, if you're missing worship, uh, but you're, you're strong in getting people to come to the church, then you have a doctrinally unstable church, you know, or vice, you know, if you're not a witnessing church, then you have really small numbers and no one's being added to the church. All three of those things are priority. But for you as individuals, maybe your giftings and your heart, you're an evangelist at heart, you know, and so 90% of your giftings are going to be used to getting out there in the community, open your mouth about the gospel, bringing people in, uh, to be nurtured and matured in here. And that's awesome. You know, as a church, we've got to be looking on all three of those fronts equally. But as an individual, man, you might be just, you're a witness, you know. And some of you, you know, you are uh, all about the worship ministry, you know, or you are all about uh, nurturing. You know, maybe those are where your gifts are at. Somehow nurturing the children or nurturing uh, the seniors or whatever it might be, um, Ask the Lord even tonight how you can best be used within the church to fulfill those three purposes of either worship, ministering to the Lord, ministering to the, to the body, the local church, or, or ministering outside of the body to those that aren't saved. As we continue the, the ecclesiology, we want to look at some metaphors that are used in the scripture to describe the church. And as well as what Jesus' role is in the church. So often with the metaphor, we're given what Jesus is uh, in that picture. So uh, most of you have heard that the church is the bride of Christ. And that would make Christ the husband or the groom. And let's flip over to Ephesians chapter 5 verse 22. And as we're looking at this, you know, just feel free. We're going to be looking at a lot of verses and uh, just, you know, pick out the things that are descriptive of the church But Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he's the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does with the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. And so that whole section of Ephesians just dedicated to husbands and wives and the submission and submitting to one another in love and the giving of oneself to each other and the serving that takes place and the nurturing that takes place. And I just love that Paul, he he lays it out. He's like, in case you haven't gotten it, I'm really describing Christ in the church here. The, the, The sacrifice and the love and the submission, you know, the presenting yourself as holy You know, just the Lord does all these things to the church in the same way that the husband should be doing these things uh, to the wife. And so uh, the the bride and the husband picture, and uh, man, does our church, does Calvary Chapel, Crook County, resemble a pure, spotless bride? You know, or is this church, you know, do we have blemishes? You know, do we need to be asking the Lord, man, are we, uh, 
you know, wearing a coffee-colored dress, <laughs> you know? Or are we pure? And every one of us can contribute to the purity, the whiteness, as we come before the Lord and we just say, like David said, Lord, search my heart, know my worries, try me and see if there be any wicked way in me. You know, use your little radar on our church and, you know, wherever the, the sin might be, Lord, just show us and convict us and let us repent of those things. Uh, another uh, metaphor of the church is um, a body and the head, a body and a head. And the church is the body of Christ. You probably heard that said before. And of course, the, uh, the head, really the, the life-giving organ, you know, without the head, there's no surviving, uh, is Christ. Um, four times in Ephesians, uh, Jesus is called the, the head of the body. It's all totally and completely about Jesus, as Colossians says. He is preeminent. He is on top, literally. In fact, flip over there to Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. You know, Colossians chapter 1 telling us that he is over, he is preeminent over all principalities, all powers, all angels, all demons, all things created, whether heaven or earth or principalities or powers or kingdoms here on earth. No matter what power it might be, Jesus is over that power. He is all-powerful. And so even over the church, he's the head. He's the power um, over the church. And so because of that, you can just flip one chapter over. Colossians chapter 2 verse 8 happened to have been in Colossians 2 this morning in my quiet time. And this is just a verse that uh, really I stopped and meditated upon. It says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. And how the world is out to cheat us through these worldly philosophies. And so often the church goes to combat against these empty philosophies with empty philosophy. You know, having some kind of debate or something like that that's just, you know, really a lot of times it's powerless. Uh, let's just bring out the book. Let's bring out the word. Let's let the word be unleashed like a pit bull, you know, and, uh, and let everything come under Christ, the head. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, you know, if I can preach to myself, I think I can preach to others. And, uh, and I say that because, man, if I'm going to be able to preach to you, then I've got to come to the Word. I've got to submit myself to the Word. I've got to submit myself to Jesus because He is the head. And I can't submit myself to philosophies of the world, no matter how great they might sound. Um, you'll just be led astray. We've got to come back to the book. We've got to come back to the inspired word of God, which is all authority over us in, in things pertaining to life and things pertaining uh, to godliness. And uh, John Stott, an English theologian, said, it's very easy to be an unfaithful steward. And there are many of them in the church today, rejecting the word of God, neglecting to study it, conscientiously not relating it to real, the real world outside, manipulating it to mean it, whatever they want it to mean, selecting from it what they'd like and discarding from it what they don't like, contradicting its plain teaching and substituting for it their own threadbare speculation. And now even uh, flagrantly disobeying its ethical teachings. No wonder the church languishes. No wonder the church is sick in so many parts because it is so cavalier in its attitude to the word of God. The word of God is so important because it reveals to us who Jesus is, his character. You know, instead of getting the little bracelet that says WWJD, and so you ask the person, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And they say, I don't really know. I was hoping you'd tell me. <laughs> and you tell them, let's look to the word. Let's look, let's see what Jesus would do. Let's observe his character. Let's see his heart. Let's examine his life. And, uh, and I just bring all this up because so much of the body is disconnected from the head. And one of the major reasons why is they're not teaching the word. You know, people don't even need to bring their Bibles to churches anymore. And that's just, that's scary and dangerous. Bring your Bibles to this church. We'll always open them up. Um, you'll get really good at flipping around. That's for sure. Um, but in a person's life, 
whenever there's um, malformation between the head and the rest of the body, you've got problems. And I know this firsthand. Nine years ago yesterday, my dad passed away from a stroke. And uh, for about four months, I spent every day by his side. And, you know, it's just crazy meditating and thinking about it yesterday and today just because I just, I remember what my dad's body was like when there was a malfunction between the head and his body. He had had a major bleed and we didn't know, uh, a bleed, a stroke, a, a hemorrhage in his brain that we didn't know until years later it was a sign of an aggressive brain cancer that he had had. Didn't know until about three years after he'd passed away. But my dad, he was a, a cowboy, a rancher, a three-time high school uh, state champion wrestler, uh, wrestled for Washington State, uh, just this buff guy. He had three other brothers, uh, and he, you know, he was the most in shape out of all of them. And I just always just, you know, oh, my dad, he's so awesome, you know. And then to see what happens when you're disconnected, there's something unhealthy between the head and the body. Uh, to see what happens to the body, uh, it's a great picture of the church. Uh, you know, they, you're unable to move properly. And my dad, his whole left side of his body was paralyzed when, when he first had his first stroke. And, uh, you know, couldn't move his hand at all. You know, he'd have to pick it up. Couldn't move his left leg whole left side of his face, droopy, unable to speak, unable to speak. Uh, His words were all jumbled. And, uh, you know, people that have those problems, they also get easily frustrated because they know what they want to do, but they're unable to do it. And I just so remember occupational therapy. And my dad would just say, I'm telling my left hand to move, but it's not moving. Telling my left leg to move, but it's not moving. He would just get so frustrated. And I just cannot imagine the frustration of your whole life, you know, having that communication and then to not have it totally frustrating. Um, You know, even the simplest task is done clumsily, you know, dragging, remember just dragging his foot, unable to eat. And, you know, just, it's just a picture of the church. If we're disconnected from the head, you know, all these things happen. We're not able to move. Anything we do, it's clumsy. We feel awkward when we're in fellowship because we're disconnected from the head. You know, we're frustrated because we know what we want to do, but we're not able to do it. Um, There's difficulty with with people that have that malfunction. There's difficulty in communicating um, because they have impaired speech or maybe, maybe they're not able to speak at all. And again, you know, when there's disconnect between the bodies, just there's either no communication or you're not able to communicate if the head is disconnected from the body. And, and, you know, finally, people that have those conditions, they're frequently tired out and unable to do the simplest task without just burning out. And, uh, but man, when you're connected to that head and that head is Christ and he is healthy, man, you're just, he gives you energy. He gives you strength. He gives you such power. And in looking at all that and just remembering all that, you know, there's never an okay explanation to be disconnected from the head. Never. Is there in your life an okay? I mean, hey, you know, you're the headless horseman. You got your head in your hand, you know. Oh, well, I, um, you know, uh, whatever, you know. No good explanation. You would be dead. Uh, and so spiritually, the only explanation, the only explanation in disconnect from the head that is causing frustration in your life and other people's life, it's causing um, a lack of communication, it's causing a lack of being able to do the most simple spiritual task. The only explanation for that dislocation from the head is sin. That's the only explanation. There's no excuse. And, and so the only uh, the only way to counter that is to repent from that sin, to turn away from that sin. And uh, to go back to the doctrine of sin just a little bit, you know, sin is not just one deed, you know, but it's a, it's a mindset. It's a lifestyle. It's a state of being. being. It's your mentality. You know, one of the, the words for sin in the Greek is uh, hamaria, which means to miss the mark. And it's an old archery term. You know, if you were to pull your bow, bow and arrow back and let that arrow go and you did anything but hit the bullseye, the judges would say, sin, missed the mark. And Romans tells us that all of us have missed the mark and fallen short of the glory of God. Even if you're almost there, you still miss the mark. Every one of us have. Some of us are pew, you know, way off over killing the judge with our arrow. But, you know, uh, we miss the mark. Another word for sin 
is hamaria, uh, and it means, or I'm sorry, is parabasis, and it means to step across the line. You know, there was a line and you crossed it, you know, and I'm usually the guy to cross the line. <laughs> I'm the guy that crosses the line. You crossed the line, right? I'm sorry, Lord. You know, uh, willingly, you know, you know you shouldn't say it. You know you shouldn't go there. You know you shouldn't do that. You know you shouldn't be in that place, but you willingly do it, and it's sin. And you need to repent of that sin or there's disconnect from the body and all of the results, like a person who had had a stroke, that's going to be happening in your spiritual life. Another word for sin is paroptima, and it means to slip across the line unintentionally. And we all sin unintentionally. In fact, in the Old Testament, there's a, an offering for unintentional sin. You know, that's, we're, we've got a sinful nature. We don't even know when we're sinning half the time. And, uh, you know, it's an accident, but just confess that to the Lord. And um, then there's anomos, which speaks of lawless rebellion, just flat-out rebellion. And then ophelemia, debt, a debt that you owe of that sin. So, um, you know, our sin, it impacts everybody else. It impacts the body of Christ, you know, as we are that body. And as you look at Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to look even more at the body. And as you're flipping there, you know, if we're in sin and if we're disconnected from the head, there's going to be all of that paralysis. There's going to be all of that frustration. There's going to be all of that inability to do anything effectively for the Lord. And, um, you know, the power, I believe, the power that our church is going to be able to, to work in Prineville is directly related to each person's connection to the head. You know, if we are recognizing our sin and we're confessing it and we're repenting of it and we're being cleansed of that and we're, we're just constantly connected to that head, man, there's going to be such power. But if four or five or 100 or 150 of us are not connected to the head, there's going to be a lack of power and we're going to be noticing it in our church and in our outreach to the community. And, uh, and so, man, I, if I could just plead with you, Join me in just asking the Lord to seek us in any way that there's a disconnect from the head so that we can be all out useful and all out powerful for him. But in Ephesians chapter 4 verse uh, 15, it uh, goes on from that, uh, you know, the, the, the purpose of a pastor to edify the saints for the work of the ministry, equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And then verse 15, but speaking the truth in love that, we, that may grow up in all things into him who's the head, Christ, from whom the whole body being joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edification of its excuse me of itself in love so as the pastor equips the saint for the work of the ministry and the saint is growing and being matured and you know just you know, being really perfected in Christ, sanctification is taking place. They're part of the body. They're, you know, we're going to get in a little bit, every member uh, doing its share. There's an effective work that happens, you know, and, and you might be, as we look at 1 Corinthians 12 in just a second, you know, you might be, uh, you know, a thumb and the body would be just so hard to operate. You know, things would be so hard to do if we didn't have our thumbs, you know, or you might be an eyelash, Man, we need our eyelashes. They keep the dust from going in. You know, you might be the uh, medulla oblongata, you know, and you help the body throw up and sneeze and cough and, you know, you're, you're kind of irritating, you know. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, I didn't even mean that the way that it came out. But, <laughs> but seriously, if the Holy Spirit's convicting you right now. Um, no, you might be the medulla oblongata, you know, this tiny little part of the brain that just is so important, you know, or, or the... Uh, you know, or a gland that just causes growth. You know, you might be a toe or that little tiny pinky toe. And who needs the pinky toe, really? That's all I am in the body. We need you. The body needs you for balance. And if you get cut off, we feel the pain. We feel the imbalance. You know, we need you to be just that complete body. But notice there's so much to underline. There's so much to just pull out here that every part does its share. And, you know, there's... a, a a lie within the church in that, you know, we are to use our gifts outside the body. And I use my gifts outside the body. That might be where the Lord's directing you, but we still need at least a percentage of your gifts inside the body. We need you to be ministering to the saints and discipling and encouraging and, you know, pouring out. And, and there's so many different ways to minister. Every one of us needs to do um, our share in the body. And then it's for the edification of itself. You might just note that. 
Where does the edification take place when every part is doing its share, every member of the body just totally functioning the way the Lord designed to function? There's total communication going between the head, which is Christ, and the rest of the body. Man, we're built up, we're edified. So our gifts are to be used to edify the body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, let's flip over there. Verse 4, and while Christ is the head, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, really the, the metaphor here is the whole body is, um, is a picture of, of uh, the church. And Christ is actually outside the body in this metaphor. We, we see that some of us are eyes, some of us are ears or whatever, parts of the head there. But in verse 4, there's diversities of gifts but the same spirit. There's differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. And so we're talking about the gifts of the spirit here. We're going to get into a list real quick. Um, But the manifestation, the gifts of the spirit, they're given as the Lord wants to give them for the profit of the church, for the edification of the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, you know, really drives that home. That it's for the edification of the church that we're to seek to excel in our gifts. And so uh, to, to get in there, verse 8, For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. For, the, for as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ." For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, uh, but many. And I remember teaching this to the high school kids, you know, at the park one year, and uh, we just had a barbecue and there was a hot dog sitting there on a kid's plate as I'm teaching. I was like, you know, if we were all one member of the body, you know, we would just look like a hot dog, you know, just cylindrical and, you know, no no function really, but just to eat, <laughs> you know, and, uh, but no, the Lord likens us to just a strong, functional, useful, intelligent, uh, you know, uh, you know, engineering, you know, we've just got so many abilities. Of course, we'd all like to have more hands. Am I right? You know, more arms to be able to accomplish more, but the Lord in his wisdom created us with two arms so that we would only do what he wants us to do. But man, the body it's so complex and so beautiful. And I am no uh, human science teacher or, you know, Chad here's got all of his anatomy taken care of for his EMT stuff. You know, I don't really know the anatomy very well. Um, But man, the body is so complex and the cell and all the structure, it all glorifies God in a radical way. You know, the cell being that little factory, uh, you know, so complex and such a tiny little thing. And, um, you know, the body is not one member, but so many different parts of the body. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, am I not of the body? Is it therefore not of the body? If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, am I not of the body? Is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? We just look like a hot dog. But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. Those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor. And uh, just reading about the pituitary gland today, you know, in the, in the brain, it's uh, the size of a pea. And uh, 0.5, half a gram is how much it weighs. And yet so much of the growth hormone it produces. And there's all these different hormones. And it just really helps all of the other glands in the body function properly. And yet it's just the size of a pea. How important is that? You know, um, some of you, you're like the pituitary gland. Don't feel insignificant because you're small. You've got a radical part to play in this church. And, uh, you know, our unpresentable parts have greater modesty but our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, 
that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And uh, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. I mean, is there one part of your body where if you get a wound, you're just like, oh, I'm, I'm sure glad it wasn't this part of it. Man, it, it hurts no matter what. I've got a wound in my cheek right now that hurts so stinking bad. And I've literally thought, man, I think I'd rather miss a finger than have this pain anymore that's been going on for a week in my mouth. And then I'm like, well, no, that would really hurt. You know, I don't think there's another part that, okay, just no pain. You know, when one part of the body suffers, man, you know, Kevin always talks about, you know, if, if our back hurts somewhere, then another muscle starts working to kind of help that part of our back, and another muscle helps that one, and pretty soon our whole back is sore, and another part, you know, our whole body hurts. Our whole body comes together to try and fight that infection or fight that wound or whatever it is, um, and, and that's the church. Man, do you not get a prayer chain in the email of someone who's in pain? Just today, I saw Julie Erickson, you know, put on Facebook, in pain, please pray. And just literally thought, I am in pain for Julie right now. You know, pray into the Lord. Just can't imagine what she's going through, but I hurt for Julie. And I'm going to pray because I hurt for Julie. <clears throat> you know, if, all, if one member of the body is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. And God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles? Do all have the gift of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? You know, it's implied no, but earnestly desire the best gifts. And yet I show you a more excellent way. So man, you don't really need to even say that much more. You know, we're a body individually. There's different members, but we are one. And it's really a beautiful picture that the Lord uses, a beautiful metaphor. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 through 8, also just describe the body there. And Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25 says that we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the uh, practice of some you know, but exhorting one another even so much more as we see the day approaching. And, you know, when, when people begin to forsake the assembling, coming together, it's like, man, we're missing four fingers today. You know, as we gather together to worship, you know, we're missing four fingers. I'm missing my kidney. I'm missing my liver. I'm missing like four different vertebrae, you know. Where are these people? They're robbing us. And, you know, I just encourage you, uh, there's so much of an attitude in the church today that, oh, I don't need to go to this or be part of this that the body's doing. And I just really encourage you with the new 242 schedule that we're doing, maybe your heart is just like, oh, I don't need to go to that. Uh, you know, I've got this or I've got that. And let me just ask, you know, it's not about you. You know, maybe ask the Lord if you should be going for someone else. Maybe someone else needs you there. Maybe the Lord has an awesome uh, opportunity for you to get to know someone, encourage them, and befriend them. It's not always about you. Sometimes it's about other people that need you there. And if you're missing, then that vertebrae is missing. That pinky toe is missing. That tooth, man, my front tooth, you know, is missing. And uh, we're just weak and pathetic as a body if we're disconnected from the head or disconnected from each other. You guys are like, yeah, I totally get it now, Rory. Okay, good. We're done with the whole body metaphor, but I just love it. I love that picture. Um, you know, each one of these metaphors is just, it, it really speaks something to us. The metaphor of the church as the body of Christ should increase our interdependence on one another, our desire to fellowship with one another, and our desire to be there for somebody else uh, to help support them and encourage them and help that body of the Christ that might be weak or, you know, honor the Lord through that bot member of the body that uh, would be giving order. And then as we read the, the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 12 on the gifts, man, each of you, the Lord's been giving you gifts or you're going to be asking for gifts. Those gifts are for the edification of the body, uh, to build the body up. Another metaphor or picture that the Lord uses uh, to describe the church is that we're a family. Don't you love being a family? Um, and uh, we're sons, we're daughters. And then, of course, 
uh, the Lord's role is that he's the father in the family. Second Corinthians chapter 6, 18 says, I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and my daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And so this metaphor of us being a family just encourages love and encourages fellowship uh, with one another. It, it encourages the sharing of all that we are with one another. And um, man, I just really sense that with some of you that just, some of you are just so close to me, closer than some of my own blood, you know, relatives, and um, something only the Spirit of the Lord can do, certainly. Uh, another metaphor is that uh, uh, we are the branches, and he is the vine. We're the branches, he's the vine, John chapter uh, 15. Or another picture in Romans chapter 11 is that we, as Gentiles, have been grafted in to an olive tree, and the church is a picture of this olive tree. My mom um, gave bone marrow to my Aunt Pam a couple years ago. My Aunt Pam had leukemia, and my mom donated bone marrow. And so as a present to my mom, my uncle got her a fruit tree that had like three or four different type of fruit trees grafted in to one tree. I guess they call it a fruit salad tree, you know? And uh, that's just us, you know? Um, you know, Israel is that original olive tree. Many of the Jews have been pulled off of that. I don't believe all the Jews have. And we've been grafted in by God's grace. We get to be a part of that fruit salad tree of Romans chapter 11, you know. And, um, and uh, uh, there's also, you know, but that metaphor of, you know, he is the vine, we are the branches, we're part of this tree. Um, you know, it's just a metaphor that causes us to want to be connected to that life source. It's very similar to being connected to the head. If any of us get disconnected from that vine, then, you know, we wither up, we dry, we're cast into uh, the fire. Another metaphor kind of in that same line is the church is a field of crops or the, the church is a harvest. And the Lord's role is he is the one that makes that harvest grow. He's the Lord of the harvest. First Corinthians, uh, he's the one who gives the increase. And, um, you know, this metaphor just encourages us to grow, you know, to um, have that spiritual nutrients that we need to be having to just be growing and also to producing, to be producing fruit. The church also is a picture of a harvest field, and that harvest just denotes that there would be fruit, fruits of the Spirit coming out in every member of the church's life. If you're a member of the church, if you're part of that uh, vine, then you're going to be having love and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control, you know, purity and holiness. And you'll be reflecting the attributes of God like we studied in the image of God. Another metaphor is that the church is a building and God, he kind of has two different roles. He's the builder of the building. Uh, he uses men to build as well, but he's also the foundation. You just flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 real quick. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 9. <clears throat> For we are God's fellow workers and you are God's field. You are God's building. So there, you know, a field, a building. According to the grace of God, which is given to me as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So the foundation of this building, uh, each one of us, part of that building uh, is Christ. And like we studied on Sunday, he's the chief cornerstone. He's that stone that the builders rejected. He's become that precious cornerstone. So the church is a building, not necessarily like this is the church walls and plaster and mortar, uh, but, you know, the, the people in the church were, were like a metaphor of a building. Um, the church is also a pillar. Paul tells Timothy that uh, the church of the living God is the pillar and the ground of the truth. You know, a pillar speaks of strength and stability. It bears the load, and the church does that throughout the ages, bears the load of the truth, carries the word, uh, you know, preaches the word, preaches the truth. Um, and uh, so both with the pillar and the building, the church being that, uh, Christ being the foundation, uh, we know from Matthew chapter 16 that Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church. So who builds that church? Uh, it's Christ. Um, the uh, Another metaphor would be that uh, we're like a temple in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. We're a temple, and I love this picture. We're a temple made up of living stones. 
And I just love that because I just picture little rocks with faces on them, you know, put in there and, you know, Don Chafee shaped rocks, you know, Chad Carpenter shaped rocks and, you know, Daniel Wales shaped rocks and their faces, their voices, you know, this temple being built made out of living stones uh, to compile this place of worship uh, for the Lord. And it says there in 1 Peter 2 verses 4 through 8, we're to... Uh, coming to him as to a living stone. So he's a living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious. And then Peter says, but you also are living stones. You're being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. So that's another thing that the church is. Uh, We're holy priests offering up, as it says there, spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So, you know, not only are we these living stones building up the temple, this place of worship, but we are also these priests offering up this worship to the Lord. And so, man, this metaphor of us, you know, being this um, just creates an awareness of God's presence in our midst. We're part of the temple. And as you know, the Old Testament, man, the glory of God in the temple, just that people were overwhelmed and couldn't stand up and just his Shekinah just bursting forth, visible for miles all around. And then the tabernacle being led around uh, by the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. And that's what the Lord wants to do in this church uh, as, as these priests, this new priesthood, holy priesthood offers up worship to the Lord. And then finally, metaphor, uh, and you might be able to think of some more in your own time, but uh, uh, being part of a flock, being one sheep in the midst of a flock. And, and of course, his role in that would be that he's the shepherd in John chapter 10. You know, he's the shepherd and his sheep know his voice. First Peter chapter, uh, I believe it's chapter 5, you know, Jesus is the chief shepherd. You know, he's that chief shepherd. We follow as sheep. We learn as sheep. We submit to that chief shepherd. And, uh, and, uh, and some more things about Jesus in the church, you know, not connected to metaphors. He's present within the church. Matthew chapter 27, verse 28, and Revelation 2 and 3. If churches are faithless or fruitless, Jesus has the authority and the power to remove their light, remove their lampstand. So... <clears throat> And of course, we get the metaphor there in Revelation 2 that we are a light to the world. Just closing here, who harms a church? Who harms a church? Four things. Number one, burned out leaders harm the church. You know, just leaders that are pouring so much of themselves out uh, that, that, man, it's just crazy as I'm reading 50 people every Christian should know and listening to other teachers. Just, man, the stress that pastors often uh, have, and I'm not saying this for pity at all because, man, the Lord's been so gracious to me. Um, But a lot of the stress, you know, pastors at the age of 30, 32, uh, 35, I mean, they're just they're at the end of themselves and, and pastors can die so young pouring themselves out and, and just those burnt out leaders so often uh, it's an opportunity for the flesh and, uh, and so many burnout pastors just fall into sin and so that's such an area that harms the church. Another thing that harms the church are, are false teachers. In Second Peter chapter 2 verse 1, Peter says, there are false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and will bring them on themselves swift destruction. So false teachers come, up, come in with other messages, you know, oh, don't, yeah, that verse doesn't mean that. Here, let me just tell you what else, you know, and adding to the word, taking away from the word. Man, you guys got to be intelligent people knowing this book so that you can sense when there's um, uh, uh, counter, counterfeit uh, doctrines out there. Again, in Second Peter, and really the theme of Second Peter is just watch out for these animals, these false teachers, these wolves. Um, the, in Second Peter 2.18, they will speak great swelling words of emptiness. They allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness. The ones who've actually escaped from those who live in error. So false teachers, you know, they can even just bring an utter perversion. And because people want their ears tickled or they want to follow their flesh and what feels good rather than what truth states, they're going to follow after those things. And that harms the church. Um, In Romans 16, 17, it says, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses 
contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. And so, man, when we see people teaching things that are unbiblical, you want to note them, and you want to avoid them. And I've been told, uh, you know, Rory, just don't mention guys' names that are heretics, or don't, you know, don't point them out. We don't need to point them out. Are you kidding me? I'm a shepherd, and I'm protecting my sheep, and I'm going to let them know where the wolves are. You know, I want to protect you guys. I don't want you being led astray. And, and so along with false teachers are those wolves. And wolves uh, attack the shepherd and then try to take the sheep away. So watch out for the wolves. Um, sometimes wolves just think they're misunderstood shepherds. And so again, you know, the wolves will come in and they'll have a complaint against the pastor or against the leadership and, you know, murmuring and complaining and trying to get you away from the leadership, get you out there away from the flock so that they can pick you off. And man, just be so wise, wise as serpents, gentle as doves. Uh, And finally, the consumer Christian, the consumer Christian is somebody who hurts the church. Consumer Christians are takers, People who are takers but never give, uh, never serve, uh, download messages from the website but never show up, have needs but don't give any any money or contribute any of their resources, uh, their time, never give prayer, never give anything that they are, but they're always just taker. You know, they've got three or four different churches that they go to and uh, they show up and they drain you and they take your, your, you know, everything of you, but they never give. And that's just something that is so a part of the church today. Uh, it's like, man, pick a church, fellowship there, you know, and, and you know, wait it out, uh, grow, get to know the people. Um, uh, so consumers, consumer Christians, you know, they can be very damaging. And so uh, that's just a little bit more of ecclesiology, uh, purposes of the church that we're to, what are we to do? Minister to the Lord in worship, uh, minister to the, the body, minister to the local church uh, in nurturing and maturing. And then we're to minister to the community through evangelizing, taking the gospel out there and showing mercy to people. Then all the metaphors that we looked at of the church, pictures of that just very richly show us how we're to be functioning, how we're to be acting, how to be loving on each other, and, uh, and then things that harm the church. And uh, so, man, may the Lord just make us vigilant in these last days, you know, to be protecting each other, protecting the, our shepherds, uh, and, uh, you know, even watching out for ourselves, examining ourselves daily. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information about Calvary Chapel or to contribute to this ministry, you can go to our website, www.calvarycrookcounty.com, or you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Thanks again for listening, and God bless.